You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Uh, welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with uh, Benjamin Story, who is a professor of politics and international affairs at Furman University, soon to be at the American Enterprise Institute. And he is also the co-author of this book, Why We Are uh, Restless on the Modern Quest for Contentment. And so this book is really, I mean, it's kind of an intellectual history in a way, but it's, but it's also uh, indirectly kind of a, a commentary on um, our current condition. People are probably wondering, well, how could people in the 17th and 18th century be writing about our current condition? But, you know, all of the authors you, you talk about in this book, Montaigne, Pascal, Rousseau, and de Tocqueville, you know, they're really kind of prophets of modernity and prophets more specifically of almost American, the American democratic experiment. It's, it's kind of strange to say. And, you know, we live in this country where the pursuit of happiness is enshrined in our, you know, both political and, and individual constitutions. And, and yet we're not doing a very good job of it in some ways, right? We're not as happy as I guess we, we've been raised to expect to be. It's sort of our right as, as Americans, as moderns to be happy. And, and yet we, we are restless in ways that, that seem to, to conflict with our, our happiness. I think you're, you're kind of arguing that, that maybe there is some degree to which this was uh, anticipated and, and seen in some ways by uh, at least some of the authors that you describe. For the question, I like your way of putting this. It reminds me, uh, we have a, down at Furman, we have a very incisive department assistant named Lori Shane. And Lori was talking about the book with us one day, and she said the thesis of the book was, how Americans pursue happiness and why it doesn't work. <laughs> and you know, this very succinct formulation I've always been greatly fond of because I think that's correct. And I think what the book tries to describe is it, we begin with Montaigne in the, in the 16th century and Montaigne's experience of religious war, which is something that I think constantly resides in the background of the modern mind. And because people were going to such extremes about transcendent concerns, about God and the good life in Montaigne's time, because they were literally burning each other alive over this. That's not, it's not exaggerated talk for him. This is, this is stuff that he witnessed. Montaigne sought to lower the temperature. And his way of lowering the temperature was to try to find happiness imminently. That is to try to find happiness simply among the pursuits and pleasures of this life by taking none of them too seriously, by doing lots of different stuff, enjoying what's good in it, and not expecting more than it has to offer. And so this makes a lot of sense in the context of Montaigne's time. In this sense, I retain my admiration for Montaigne as someone who gives a, a very powerful and original humanistic response to some really terrible human conditions. But Blaise Pascal, maybe Montaigne's greatest reader and his greatest critic, comes along two generations later and says, this way of pursuing happiness can't possibly work for a human being. And the reason for that is because Pascal says, l'homme passe l'homme. That means man transcends man. And Montaignean humanism is all about finding our happiness in the here and now through the cultivation of our of our human capacities and nothing more than that. 
And what Pascal says is that paradoxically, humanism is inhumane. That is, humanism is, is not reflective of the genuine human condition insofar as that condition is a self-transcending condition. And so in this sense, yes, there's something insofar as we pursue happiness in a Montaignan way. And I'm happy to talk about why my wife and I have, have come to the view that modern American people, many of whom have never read Montaigne, nonetheless pursue happiness in a, in a Montaigne way. Insofar as we pursue happiness in a Montaignan way, we're alienating ourselves for something deep in ourselves. And that makes us unhappy. Well, let's dig into Montaigne because I think it was Keynes who said we're all kind of living in a, in a world as slaves to some economist, but I think you'd expand it more broadly and say that we're all living in a world that was created by, you know, thinkers of all stripe. And to some extent, you know, Montaigne and Shakespeare invented the modern world, but, you know, although a lot of us read Shakespeare, not a lot of us read Montaigne. And I guess I'm one of the few that, that did read him at one point in my life. And when you kind of refreshed my memory, I, I realized what a profound impact that this guy had on my, my life, at least. I had a girlfriend at one point accuse me of trying to live like a early modern French aristocrat, and she said it as if it was a bad thing, right? <laughs> so, and I thought, well, wait, that sounds kind of good, actually. But yeah, I mean, he he really is, to some extent, kind of the, the inventor of this uh, pursuit of happiness. So I guess one question is, first of all, why was he so spot on? You know, how come he's had this profound influence? Is he actually influential or is he just sort of prophetic in a, in a way? Well, that's a really good question. And I think it's a question to which I, I want to say, I don't know and I don't know that you need to know. But what I, what I mean by mm -hmm. that is the following. That Montaigne had influence, that he was widely read by other people who were widely read. That is, that he inflected the thought of all kinds of writers who would go on to inform many of the institutions and beliefs of the modern world, this is indisputable. Montaigne's essays are thought by some people to have been the most widely read book in Europe during the 17th and 18th centuries. Even if they weren't the most widely read, they were among the most widely read books. And many, many people who your listeners will have heard of were in fact students of Montaigne. And so Shakespeare, for example, it's one of the few books that we can tell for sure that Shakespeare read is Montaigne's essays. He seems to have shared the same copy with Ben Johnson. He was read by Descartes and Bacon and Locke and David Hume and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Friedrich Nietzsche and, and many of the minds who make the modern world were very steeped in Montaigne. And, you know, I think maybe the best way one can get an impression of that is simply by looking at Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay called Montaigne of the Skeptic. It gives you something of a sense of the way in which Montaigne embodies the character of the skeptic, which is in itself, for reasons we can discuss, really important for understanding what the modern world is all about. And uh, Emerson would choose Montaigne as the guy who typifies this attitude is, I think, really representative of his influence. But what I mean to say by the by the other side of the question that, oh, okay, so, so Montaigne is an influential guy in a certain sense. But another way, you know, if you're a historian, you, you know that locating a person as a cause for a historical phenomenon is a very tricky thing to do. And so I don't want to say that I know that because I don't. But I think what one can say is that Montaigne articulated something more powerfully, more deeply in a way that many people recognize before anybody else did. And in a way that 
lots of other people would come along and they'd look at Montaigne and they'd, they'd say things like, like, like you did. I mean, you know, I had a Montaignean face myself, out of which I was, you know, maybe trying to live like a 16th century French aristocrat, which is pretty preposterous given my material conditions of my life as compared to his, the um, no chateau in my background. Uh, people say about Montaigne, they, they read him for a little while and they say, how did he know all that about me? Because he just has an extraordinary capacity for putting himself on the page, for making his readers feel like they know him. But not only that, for making his readers feel like they see the, the workings of their own soul being played out on the pages of Montaigne. And so I think this is, gives you something of a sense of, of, of the attraction of him. So let's dig into this concept of kind of imminent contentment that, that he talks about. Because on the one hand, this, this vision of being present in the moment and being at ease and in balance, you know, moderation through variation. In some ways, you can recognize that in kind of the pursuit of happiness of, of many Americans. You know, in many ways, it seems different from the pursuit of happiness that is critiqued by de Tocqueville. So to what extent is his version of the pursuit of happiness one that we can recognize around us today? I think what we can recognize around us today of the Montaigne way of pursuing happiness is something of the dabbling quality of mm -hmm. the way Americans go about their lives. Americans have a very hard time ranking the goods. That is figuring out what are the most important things that we should be pursuing. And so you see this in college students in terms of the intense attraction to double majors and more than one study abroad program and the tendency mm -hmm. to be president of this club, but also treasurer of that one that, but also is, is, is sort of the mm -hmm. favorite conjunction of American life, right? Because we're, we're doing lots and lots of things. And, and I, I think everybody knows, particularly when you get to middle age, how difficult it is to say no, even when your time is pressingly finite. And I think in that sense, we have this difficulty ranking things hierarchically that drives the dabbling character of our pursuit of happiness. I think you're right that we don't have Montaigne nonchalance. And mm -hmm. I think that has something to do with our social condition. That is, Montaigne was, he was an aristocrat. He lived in a chateau. He didn't have to worry very much about his place in life. That's not, that's just not true for most Americans. And so, we don't know exactly what we're pursuing in the happiness sense, but we know that what we're able to produce on our own is absolutely decisive for our place in the world. And so this gives our quest for happiness a kind of anxiety that, at least in the social sense, is unknown to somebody like Montaigne. Now, there may be another dimension of that anxiety that is that is more fundamentally human, less related to social conditions that we should talk about. But I think that might give you some sense of the of the difference between the periods and the and the experiences. Right. So you know when he's trying to maintain some kind of balance, I've always thought that you know it'd be great to be well rounded. But as soon as you think you're well rounded, you look at it from a different perspective and you see all sorts of deficiencies and all sorts of sharp points. Is this idea of balance one that is even you know, realistically attainable, or, or is it something that, that's only attainable when you have almost inherited a, a series of options, right, that are circumscribed in some way, right? I mean, Montaigne did not live in this in this world where you had you know, five thousand majors to choose.
choose from. We didn't live in a world where there's about 16 different types of you know, cornflakes in the aisle, right? So is it easier to be kind of balanced when you have a relatively finite menu of, of things to, to choose from? I think that's a, a fair question. For us, balance becomes something more more problematic because of the tremendous variety of things on offer. But I think we were talking about a, a moment ago before we, we started the show, you had the experience of having to narrow in on the focus of your graduate studies. And I think everybody who has made their way into adult life knows this experience. That is, you can, you can dabble when you're in college and you go to graduate school, the dabbling is over. You have to become something. And I think Americans are extraordinarily hesitant about that. Mm -hmm. One story I think is illustrative of this is, so my wife and I do some summer teaching with students from all over the country. And one of them was this remarkable young man who had been a student first at West Point and then at Harvard. You know, this is a person, he decided, if I recall correctly, the liberal education at West Point wasn't doing what he wanted to do because West Point students are very intensely focused on the military part of their training. And so he moved over to Harvard because he wanted to get that experience. So this is a young man with an extraordinarily well-developed sense of potentiality, right? Because if you've been both a West Point cadet and a Harvard student, boy, you could do an awful lot in life, right? Uh, you know, the, the worlds of high finance and great wealth open to you. The world of military command is probably also a possibility, probably uh, be in politics. And this young man said to us, and he was talking about making choices for a summer or for right after college. And he said, what I hate more than anything is what he called spending his chips. He's got all this super well-cultivated potentiality and he doesn't know what to plunk the chips down on because look mm -hmm. at all these beautiful chips. Like, am I actually going to bet them on this and not that? That's very difficult. And so in this sense, I, I, I understand why somebody like this, and he's an extreme version of something many young people, mm -hmm. I think, experience now. So I understand why they have this experience. However, as uh, a friend of ours pointed out to us once, it's only by plunking down your chips, by settling on a way of life, that you actually start to become anything. That is, when you retain yourself in a position of pure potentiality, you're not really anything. You mm -hmm. could be lots of stuff, like a stem cell, but you're not anything in particular. And so to become something, it has to be something specific. And I think that's one of the things that we we hope people will might take away from reading a book like this. But I think at the end of the day, Montaigne does not derive his sense of happiness, as we might call it, from kind of what he does or what he dabbles in or you know, from the dilettantism, but rather from, you know, something internal, right? This this idea of of, of sincerity, right? He's, he's trying to kind of reinvent the sense of, of nobility, right? Away from one's status in society towards some internal construction, which has certain characteristics. What I liked about it is he said, you know, sincerity of the kind that he describes is not something that's automatic, but rather is, is learned and requires a great deal of work. To what extent is he kind of creating a, a new model for you know what it means to be noble as a human? I think that's as he put. So Montaigne, he's very careful not to make exalted moral claims for himself, except on a few occasions. 
And one of those occasions in, is in which he claims for the essays a kind of pure frankness. That is, he says, I'm telling it like it is here. And how does he do that? I think it's closely tied to his repudiation of transcendent aspirations. That is, mm-hmm. Montaigne says, I'm not trying to be anybody's hero. I'm not trying to be a saint. I'm not trying to be a philosopher. I'm just trying to be an integral human being. And insofar as I'm doing that, insofar as I'm trying to hold myself to an imminent standard, a standard that can be realized by human beings here and now, then I can afford to be perfectly transparent. And so it's it's that perfect transparency that he tries to present to us as a new kind of integrity or nobility as you were putting it. And I think you're right to describe it, or it's insightful to describe it as a new kind of nobility, but it's also meant to be in a certain way democratic, right? Because Mm -hmm. you don't have to be a genius to be sincere. You don't have to be a conquering hero to be sincere. You don't have to have any extraordinary moral qualities. You just have to tell it like it is, not promise too much, and hold yourself to the promises you make. I think you're right that this is Montaigne's happiness ultimately resides more in his sense of being self-contained than it does in his sense of, in the things that he's engaging with outside of himself. So he likes to read books, but he doesn't locate his happiness in books. You know, he has love affairs, but he doesn't locate his happiness there. He locates his, his happiness and his integrity and actually in the activity of writing the essays themselves, right? That, you know, this is where Montaigne is putting himself on the page. Well, I think he also says that, and, and you mentioned, you know, knowledge and, and wisdom is, is not really his goal. It's more like judgment. And, you know, judgment seems, I mean, it seems almost very, it's a couple centuries before its time, right? I mean, it's it's very much like a bourgeois virtue in a way, right? It's very pragmatic. He's echoing Adam Smith or, or Hume or, I don't know, William James, right? I mean, he's, he's, it seems very kind of early bourgeois virtue in a way. Montaigne has been described as the godfather of the, of the bourgeois, in part because he makes a self-centered life look attractive. There's no pretensions here. He's just doing him and I think for an older tradition, that would just look, you know, being so focused. And Montaigne says, you know, he, he writes this book that, you know, depending on the edition, it's a thousand pages. And he says, it's all about me. And, you know, for an older tradition, that's an incredible problem. You wrote a thousand pages about yourself. What is this? This is incredibly self-indulgent and, and vain. But what Montaigne does is he says, no, no, no. The vain and self-indulgent thing is to suppose that human beings can actually describe anything you might call the human mm. condition or the or the, the good life for man right like that's what's vain that's presumption mm. so montaigne shares with socrates for example the idea of the quest for self-knowledge but the quest for self-knowledge for socrates really does mean investigating the question what is man what are the various virtues that human beings can can try to live up to Whereas for Montaigne, it really is an investigation of one particular human being, Michel de Montaigne. And this is, in a way, a retraction from the exalted virtues of an older tradition. It's, it's bourgeois. 
in that sense. And he brings it forward, you know, what would have been described by an older tradition as an incredibly vain book comes forward under the banner of modesty. That's one mm -hmm. of the remarkable things that Montaigne pulls off. And I agree with you that judgment is closely related to this. That is, Montaigne is not trying to work out a system of classifications by means of which he suggests all of us can understand the world. He is instead simply offering us his judgments on all the phenomena that come at him. And it's really it's fascinating to watch him do this and to see how good he is at seeing to the bottom of various human situations that he finds in histories or philosophy books or just out among his neighbors. So he's great at this, but it's all particular judgments and there's no system. And in this sense, I think there's, there's something new and modern and bourgeois. I think that's right. Mm -hmm about Montaigne's way of looking at the world. Now, look, when, when Pascal comes along and, and critiques Montaigne, I mean, you know, he talks about diversion, divertissement, and, and busyness, and kind of claims that this is, it's, it's kind of keeping your eye off the ball, and it's ultimately unsatisfying. But in a way, isn't that a little bit of unfair of, of a critique? I mean, when you think of Montaigne, he, he's not on Instagram and Facebook. You know, whenever when I read Pascal, it was before... Instagram and Facebook, but you know, you could recognize busyness all around you in 1980s uh, America or whatever. But, but you know, Montaigne's like, hey, you know, I want the happiness of, of a cat in the sun. It doesn't seem like, you know, busyness to me. So you know, what exactly was Pascal, you know, critiquing? I mean, is, is it just that what Montaigne was pursuing was so unrealistic for most people that most people would take away from his vision the need to just continually be active and busy. Is this, is this criticism fair? Or is he really more criticizing what he sees down the road as being the inevitable consequence of, of this vision? Well, it's certainly the case that... So Pascal lived in a generation of people who were really marked by Montaigne. And again, also marked by the social condition that makes Montaigneanism make sense. That is, the old nobility of France are sort of dying out, they're being replaced by this group that's something called the, the bourgeois gentilhomme. And they are people who aspire to a certain kind of nobility, but that nobility is more of a sort of drawing room nobility, if you will, than the nobility of the nobility of the battlefield that would have been sort of around in Montaigne's generation. And so they look to Montaigne as a kind of hero because he models as you were saying a moment ago, he models a different kind of nobility for this new generation. And Pascal looks at them, and in a sense, I think he certainly x-rays them more sharply than would have been possible with somebody as sophisticated as Montaigne. But I think it's also to note that when you read along through Pascal, if you're somebody who has spent some time with Montaigne, all the, you realize that it's everywhere. You know, if you get a good edition, there'll be lots of notes that indicate the borrowings from Montaigne, but none of the editions that I've seen actually get them all because they're so ubiquitous. Pascal was absolutely steeped in this. And so I think he really was grappling with the Montaignean way of life. And I think he just ultimately has a different view of what the human soul is all about than Montaigne. And I think what he's saying is that, look, Montaigne, you're wrong about what human beings are. And therefore, you're wrong about how satisfying the kind of life that you recommend could possibly mm -hmm. be. That is, human beings are mortal, finite, but have these transcendent aspirations mm -hmm. that they simply cannot extricate from themselves. They are there. 
And so following that desire carefully, not, you know, mistaking the finite for the transcendence, that's very important for Pascal. But if we stop doing that, then really all our activities are just distractions because mm -hmm. they can't be anything else is, I think, Pascal's way of looking at this. Well, I've actually mentioned Pascal in some of my previous podcasts, but only as a statistician, right? And so a lot of people think of, of Pascal as being this very deeply religious person, but I don't think that that gets in the way of his quality as a social scientist. I mean, it seems like Pascal's actually a little bit more realistic about human psychology than Montaigne. Montaigne sort of it sort of dismisses this aspect of humans as being something, you know, he's normatively saying you shouldn't be doing this, but uh, I don't think he's, he's accurate when he says that it's, it's going to be an easy thing for you to do, to kind of just shed any need for transcendence or shed any, any desire for this, this source of meaning in life. You know, one of the interesting things about Pascal, if, you're, if your listeners don't know him that well, so Pascal, this incredible career that uh, you might have described in, in talking about some of his work on things like probability theory. He has this incredible career as a physicist, mathematician. For example, he's the guy who discovers that nature does not, in fact, abhor a vacuum. That's just one of Pascal's many contributions. He invents the world's first working calculator, the uh, Mechadoo sums, they could subtract and divide, can multiply of the, up to eight digits. It's, it's a really extraordinary thing. And there's some of them still around, they still work. So Pascal's a great mathematician and scientist, and he gets into theological controversy with his provincial letters. But then he goes to work on this thing called the Pensée, which is going to be his great apology for the Christian religion. That's what it's meant to be. It's meant to be a work of apologetics. But the beginning of that work of apologetics is meant to be a work of anthropology. That is a simple, a description of human beings to themselves so as to let us see what we're really like. And I think this retains a tremendous measure of the power with which it was originally written. So when Pascal describes, for example, the human encounter with mortality. He describes us at one point as people running toward a cliff who hold something in front of their faces so they can't see what's about to happen to them, right? That, that's Pascal's version of distraction, right? It's like, I know I'm headed toward death, but I'll just put something up here so I don't have to see it. When, when Pascal describes things like this, when he describes the sources of, of human sadness and misery, what I find in teaching this over the years is that students feel like, oh, finally, somebody told the truth. That is, and I think this is what, you know, I told you before we started that the first time I read Pascal, I, I couldn't stand it. I hated it. And I think the reason I hated it was because I was interested in happiness. Pascal was telling me, no, sorry, <laughs> this is not going to, this is not going to work. There's a lot of suffering in human life. And when I was 25, I didn't want to believe that. But you can't avoid it as you get a bit older. And many people know it much younger than I did. And I think that's one of the things that Pascal is so arresting for, is his ability to show people the truth of... of they, they see somebody holding up a mirror to their own suffering. And 
I think that's just way too rare an experience for lots of people reading the history of philosophy, because it all seems to be focused on human flourishing as opposed to human misery, which is, which is a big part of what Pascal is interested in. But to the extent that you know yourself, right, you, you are going to be miserable, right? I mean, self-knowledge is going to lead to anguish, but, but he doesn't then say, all right, well, you know, stop that pursuit, right? Don't bother to try to know yourself, but rather once you've achieved that kind of self-knowledge and experienced that anguish, then, you know, make the next move, right? And he's not, in other words, he's, he's not endorsing self-deception, even though he, he describes it all around him, right? I think you're right. Montaigne describes a world in which when we know ourselves, we become happy. There's a congruency between knowing ourselves and sort of being in balance with ourselves, being able to be content in the people that we are. That's why Montaigne in his book kind of form a whole. Mm -hmm. And Pascal sees this very differently. He says, there are lots of people who aren't really looking for God of the good. And those people are just kind of distracting themselves with stuff. I think all of us know this, right? Where I just can't handle existential questions. I'm too mm -hmm. distracted. I'm too busy. I'm too bored. I'm too tired. You know, I flip through the newspaper. I surf on my phone. And Pascal says, you know, that's, that's how lots of people go through their whole lives is just distracting themselves like this. And so what he wants to do is take us from that place where we're just distracting ourselves. And our distractions can be a whole lot more interesting than the cell phone. I mean, distractions mm -hmm. can be, can be big things. Pascal describes, you know, hunting and gambling, but also flirting. And pretty soon he, he talks about being a king as mm -hmm. a kind of distraction, right? Like, you know, what's so great about being prime minister? What's so great about being prime minister is people just come at you all day long mm -hmm. saying, I need this, I need that. They make you feel very important and they give you no time whatsoever to think about yourself. And Pascal says, that's what we actually want. What we want is the distraction from ever having to contemplate ourselves. And so he says, this love of distraction can be it's there in much more exalted human experiences and pursuits than just web surfing or, you know, the things that we all recognize as kind of distractions. But what Pascal is trying to do is move us from this sort of distracted place to a place where we recognize our anguish, where we recognize the fact that, look, I want true knowledge, real happiness. I want real love. And you know what? I look around me in the human world and those things are just not available. And this is terrible. But once we face that, then we begin seriously to seek. Mm -hmm. Pascal thinks the ultimate destination of that seeking is God. But Pascal doesn't think that he can give you God because he's not God. He's Pascal. What he can do, what he can do is help you get stuff out of the way. Get, help get the blinders off. So you can understand like what your real situation is. And why it makes sense to start looking. Now, now, Rousseau is very sympathetic to what Pascal's trying to do. He recognizes that, that people need this transcendence, but he, he brings it back to earth, right? And says that, you know, maybe we don't need God. We can achieve this type of happiness, right? Here, you know, in the secular world, right? And, and I think you describe quite well how his thought changed over the course of his lifetime. I think most people who 
know Rousseau, they probably know him only through maybe the social contract or the other treatise. They probably don't read his his other work. And so they don't, don't read uh, Emile probably, and they probably don't read his, his wander, his walks and wanderings, right? But tell us a little bit, like, because I think that you know, we've inherited quite a bit from Rousseau as well in our modern kind of political culture, haven't we? Yes. And so I think what we try to describe with, in giving an account of Rousseau, this, so Montaigne's a 16th century thinker, um, Pascal's a 17th century thinker, Rousseau is our representative of the 18th century. And what Rousseau does is he knew Montaigne and Pascal both quite well. And he looks at Pascal's critique of Montaigne. And he says this bourgeois way of pursuing happiness that Montaigne is engaged in. He says, Pascal is right. That is never going to hold water. This is not going to be enough for human beings. And he thinks that Rousseau is, is very clued in to the vanity and social climbing involved in bourgeois pursuits. So he agrees with Pascal's diagnosis that Montaignanism is not going to work, but he wants to stay on the same plane as Montaigne. That is, Pascal is saying, you need to look for transcendence because you can't stop yourself from looking for transcendence. You're going to look for mm -hmm. it even if you don't want to look for it. So look, and Rousseau is saying, we don't have to go beyond the natural plane. We have to find a life that is more coherent, more wholehearted than Montaigne's but we're still trying to live by a natural standard or by an imminent standard, you might say, a standard that's possible to realize in the here and now. And so I think that's the uh, summation of the whole Rousseau in pursuit mm -hmm. is we're going to have the integrity that somebody like Pascal demands, but we're going to have it on naturalistic or imminentistic terms. We're going to have it here and now. And I think, yes, we can see the pursuit of that in all kinds of different ways going on around us. You know, we see all the time that lots of people will give you their critique of the bourgeois, right? The, you know, critiquing the bourgeois is, is, is like what, you know, it's what the average intellectual does for a living. I mean, this is a very common kind of talk, but most people are trying to do some sort of variation on Montaigne's pursuit of imminent contentment. So most people are trying to find some kind of happiness in the here and now. And so Rousseau is the first bohemian. He's often been described that way. But I think David Brooks was right to recognize that the Bohemian and the, and, and the bourgeois have something in common. And in fact, if you scratch the surface of most Bohemians, you'll find a bourgeois under there and that the bourgeois mm -hmm. is kind of the dominant element when you really look. But the, these kind of Bohemian pursuits are one version of what Rousseau is describing. Right. And so, you know, we haven't talked about politics at all, but if We've just been talking about kind of individual pursuit of, of happiness. But you comment at the very beginning of the book that the political culture in which we live and society in which we live is is inevitably going to be shaped by our view of you know what it means for people to pursue happiness. And we shape our society in order to presumably facilitate that. And and it's really, you know, I think the Tocqueville that comments most um, insightfully about what this means. And and I think America, he points to as kind of the embodiment of these principles that have been described. Can you tell a little bit about, I mean, when I read the Tocqueville, I think, well, this this could have been written yesterday, right? There's so much in it that, that seems like current events as opposed, I mean, of course, you know, Americans in the 1830s didn't have 
Instagram, but they, you know, they had, they kind of had something similar, right? I mean, he's, he's extraordinarily, he's incredibly contemporary in, in his, uh, insight. I've, I've, I've often wondered about this. I mean, people have noted for a long time that Tocqueville was an incredible prophet. The most striking example of this is uh, a speech he gave in 1848 in January. He stands up in the National Assembly. He was a he was a member of the of the French Representative Assembly, and he says, "We're governing really badly. People are really angry, and there's going to be a revolution." And everybody says, "Oh, come on, Tocqueville, you're so dour. You don't know mm. what you're talking about, and so on and so forth." And a month later, there was a revolution. <laughs> and it's, you know, he just he he has a capacity for seeing that is extraordinary. I link this to a to something that seems quite different, which is so he and his friend Gustave de Beaumont. They came to this country and their, their official mission on behalf of the French government, you know, they had an official mission, which is, is what the, allowed them to make the trip. Their official mission was to write a report on our penitentiary system. Mm-hmm. And they did their duty and they went to various prisons and so on and so forth. And they were right. And they wrote up a report and won a prize. But it looks like Gustave de Beaumont did most of the work of writing up that report because Tocqueville didn't seem to feel very inspired. And he describes this really funny picture of himself. He, he, if you haven't read any of Tocqueville's letters for your readers, you should really read the letters. They're wonderful and give you this splendid portrait of this human being. But he describes himself sitting there in this chair, like waiting for the muse of the penitentiary system to come visit him. <laughs> and and right. the muse is like holding back. So he has a hard time, uh, he has a hard time uh, like getting anywhere. But I mean, I think that's a beautiful picture of how Tocqueville thought. He was a guy who had sits puts. He would just sit there and let reason work itself out. Mm-hmm. And I think this is really powerfully evident in the second volume of Democracy in America. You know, the first volume was more popular uh, during Tocqueville's lifetime. That's the one that won him the prize, eventually his his place in the Académie Française and so on. The second volume wasn't quite so well received, but I think the second volume actually stands the test of time better. The, the first volume now looks like a retrospective on 1830s America. The, um, you can see what it was like then, but there's a lot that's very different, um, a lot that has decisively changed. Whereas the second volume it's Tocqueville meditating on the basic passions, the turns of mind, the habits of the heart of human beings under democratic conditions. And so he'll notice something and then he'll just sit there and think about it. What are the mm-hmm. logical consequences of this? And he comes up with extraordinary things. And I think that's how, by thinking through what are the consequences going to be of what he calls the equality of conditions on, for example, how Americans relate to their governments or how Americans eventually relate to their families. By sitting there and just thinking that through, he manages to see forward in time in a certain way, because it's it's certainly not the case that history is a series of logical deductions, but it's also not the case that that's simply untrue. That is, if we have certain principles, we kind of work them out over the course of our of our of our history. And I think Tocqueville sees in a way, what's going to happen to Americans by looking at that. And so, you know, he describes Americans as, you know, industrial, uh, they love material well-being, right? They, they have a hunger for, for change. I think that's all still true today. And, you know, he mentions that, that Americans, they don't have time for philosophy, right? They're too busy. Philosophizing means, you know, you're going to miss out on life. And it struck me when 
whenever you ask somebody nowadays, kind of, how are you doing? Right? I don't know. I remember when people would say, no, I'm doing all right or whatever. But now it seems like 90% of the people, when you ask them how they're doing, they say, you know, they say they're busy, keeping busy, like really busy. And, and, and I guess that's, is that, that's equivalent of like, I'm doing great. <laughs> you know, like it, that is, Tocqueville has this great line that there's nothing more hostile. I can't remember if that's the word he uses, but there's nothing more hostile than the interior of a democratic society. Because he sees you and I, our place in the social world is not assured. We, everybody is constantly climbing in the democratic social world because, because their place is not assured, which means that it's not just the case that I need to try to get ahead. It's the case that everybody else around me is trying to get ahead, which means that I don't just fail if I go backwards. I fail if I sit still That is because everybody else is advancing. Mm -hmm. And so we're constantly caught up in this dynamic of needing to advance simply in order to sit still. And that makes philosophizing incredibly hard because what philosophizing requires is... Step off the hedonic treadmill for a few hours and... Right. That's right. And so Tocqueville noticed our all the way back in his own time that Americans sort of lived out the principles of Descartes, but they never read it because reading mm -hmm. philosophy was just something that they did not have time for, much less just actually like sitting there and thinking philosophically. At least if you're reading, you can, you can assimilate that to some kinds of worldly pursuits. So this is a really paradoxical thing is that in a democratic, a free society like our own, we can figure out for ourselves what we think the meaning of life is and try to live that vision of how we should conduct ourselves out. But we feel so pressured not to take time to actually think things through, which takes a lot of time if you're really going to try to do it well. We feel so much pressure to do this that we just end up in this kind of individualistic society where everybody can go their own way. Well, as Tocqueville was, was, I don't know if he was the first to notice this, but it's been noticed many times since, everybody going their own way ends up looking like everybody going the same way. Because when you don't have time to think things through for yourself, or you feel like you don't have time to do that, you end up taking your direction from social cues. You end yeah. up looking around saying, oh, okay, how's this person doing it? How's that person doing it? And so you end up following the crowd. And that was the paradoxical dynamic that Tocqueville tried to describe in Democracy in America. Here's this world in which everybody is free to think for themselves. And lo and behold, everybody thinks just like everybody else. It's remarkable. Yeah, I have a, I have a friend who, who said his goal in life was to basically be in a position where he could do anything he wanted. But when I, I said, well, when you do have free time, what do you do? And you know, he's basically doing what you know, Facebook wants him to do. <laughs> you know, he's, he's basically just a, a, a slave to whatever you know, stimulus happens to be coming into his consciousness at that moment, right? And it seems like that, you know, we've taken this to geometrically higher levels. People are, you can't even stand still for 30 seconds waiting for the bus. You know, you have to pull out your phone and, and look at things. I mean, this seems to be, I think if the Tocqueville were alive today, he would say, hey, you know, this is it's the same thing. It's just maybe amped up a little bit. I think that's right. And I think we could all... <laughs> particularly those of us who've experienced, who've lived on both sides of the digital divide in a way, that is people of my age or your age, we came to adult consciousness in the world before the internet was omnipresent. And we can remember somewhere 
what it was like to have that kind of mind. But, you know, lots of people have pointed out that our constant interaction with the internet rewires us in a certain way. You're just constantly seeking new stimuli. And it's very hard to get out of these kinds of cycles. It's very hard to disconnect, in part because we do this funny thing where things we really need to know and respond to. So, for example, you know, I can't just check out of email because there's there's work to be done there. There's people who need things from me and I have to attend to those people's needs. This is it would be a, a failure of duty to just check out. But this is also like sitting right next to various kinds of entertainment, whether that's like reading the newspaper or watching sports clips or whatever it is that you happen to like to do. And so the mind becomes just thawed with constant engagement with new stimuli, and it makes it very difficult. You know, a lot of thinking, so I described earlier, you know, Tocqueville sitting in his chair and intentionally sort of shutting things down so he can just think. But I think for many of us, and probably for him too, a lot of thinking just happens when you're not doing much of anything. And when your mind is not distracted, but we hardly allow us ourselves any of that kind of time. We're constantly distracted. That makes it all the more difficult for us to imagine genuinely distinctive or meaningful lives. Well, I think this accounts for the popularity of what we might call the mindfulness movement, right? I mean, certainly out here in, in Silicon Valley, there are a lot of people that are attracted to you know, whether it's mindfulness or uh, Buddhist uh, movements. I think this is people recognize that there's something missing and, and they're trying to, to find that. And I don't think that that's not even a desire for transcendence. I think it's just a desire to the, the, the busyness, at least initially. And then perhaps there may be some transcendence you know, comes later, but the transcendence won't be found until I guess the, the, the busyness is kind of put on hold, right? Yes. And I think this is where we get to a genuinely existential question, which is, the mindfulness movement seems to me good in the sense that it is good for people to stop being so distracted. Somebody used to do these workshops on the campus where I worked and I wanted to go, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. because I, I was always too busy, <laughs> the, uh, mm -hmm. but it always looked like a good idea, right? I should just go sit still for a while. That would be good for me. And I think that's really true. I think the question, but unavoidably, one is going to creep up on a theological question here. If we really get good at sitting still, and it's worth noting here that Pascal's famous remark that when I think about all the, the cause of all men's unhappiness, I locate it in his inability to sit alone in a room. Mm -hmm. So if we learn to sit alone in a room, as Pascal counsels us to, what do we actually find? Do we find a kind of imminent bliss? In this sense, one could say that Buddhism is, is a cousin of Montagnanism, if you will? Mm -hmm. Or do we find a kind of emptiness that is looking for something that doesn't seem to be on offer in the tangible, visible, audible world around us? And thats I don't think that's a question that you or I could answer for anybody else. I think that's a question that people have to, they have to try it out and see what they find. Well, Tocqueville is also, um, he's somewhat nostalgic of the ordered, structured world of the you know, pre-French Revolution, right? This idea of aristocracy. And, it, and I don't think it's really so much the, the hierarchy that, that he's nostalgic for as much as it is the, I don't know, the, 
the lack of choice, right? The the idea that your your life is kind of laid out for you. You have some limits and you have some constraints and and you have kind of a, a path, right? You know, if you're born as a as a butcher, your father was a butcher, you're a butcher, right? You don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about what you're going to do. And he saw this as as somewhat liberating. Maybe we could think in in terms of, you know, arranged marriages, right? Apparently people in arranged marriages, they seem to be perfectly fine with it. And uh, certainly in those societies, you have fewer single people who are tender, unhappy or whatever. Is it the hierarchy or is it really more just the having some constraint on one's choice that, that Tocqueville thinks could could kind of reduce the, the level of, of anxiety or restlessness? That's a great question. I think Tocqueville, he has some chapters in Democracy in America on the family and they're fascinating chapters. And he describes a very hierarchical aristocratic family where you would call your father, my Lord, where you would, he'd be somebody with whom you sought an audience like you would with a, I don't know, a university president or something like this uh, these days. So a very distant kind of person, but whose authority was unquestioned in your mind or, or was, was a major presence in your life, who was the kind of nexus of transmission between you and, and previous generations. And there's a certain power to this kind of order, as Tocqueville sees it. But he notes around him that, you know, Tocqueville lived in an aristocratic milieu. His family's a very old French family that can trace its origins back to the Battle of Hastings. They had serious troubles during the French Revolution, which touched his family directly, including his own parents. And so Tocqueville knew lots of what he called fiery enemies of democracy. But he says in their own families, those people let their children, even people who are fiery enemies of democracy, let their children call them du in French instead of vous. That is, you know, the, let them address them in an informal way. And so he thinks on these grounds, democracy is clearly an advance in the sense that the intimacy of the family that I think many Americans know, and almost all Americans maybe prize. Well, I think Tocqueville thinks there's something really good in that. But then he sees that there's another possibility pregnant in this movement toward democracy. And I think this is what you were describing, which is in the aristocratic world, everybody knows their place, right? It's, you know, I'm I'm the eldest son, and this means a certain thing for me. I'm a younger son, this means something else. As you were saying, you know, my, my father was a butcher, and so I'm going to be a butcher. And that's all there is to it. Thankfully, we don't live like that. We can change our professions. You know, you're not necessarily subjected to your older siblings. You're not, you know, we don't have some of those, those institutions which are in a way pregnant with injustice. But we've got our own set of problems. And that set of problems is not having the slightest idea how to orient ourselves toward anyone. And so when you see on college campuses, for example, professors who insist on being called by their first names, I think this is really terrible for students. Students need to have their professors be distant authorities because they it's not appropriate to have a really informal relationship with such a person. Such a person does, in fact, have power in your life. And recognizing that by terms that have a certain distance that actually holds the professor up to a certain standard, right? It's like, look, if you're to call me Dr. Such and Such or Professor Such and Such, that means I have to conduct myself in a certain way toward you. I have to bear my responsibility well. And to pretend, you know, no, I'm just bad. I'm not, you know, Dr. This or Professor That. That allows me a kind of license 
which I don't think it's appropriate for us to have. And so that's what, that's what Tocqueville warns us about. In a flat world in which you know nothing about how you should relate to another human being, except that this is just another human individual, everything is going to be very complicated and fraught because that whole status game that we were talking about earlier, it's engaged constantly, right? You don't know whether somebody is a potential friend or a potential lover. You don't know whether this older person is an equal to you or somebody actually you're above. That's that's a very disorienting experience. And I think that's what Tocqueville would say we have going on all around us, is that we are now just profoundly socially disoriented because we have uh, effectively, we have no traditional hierarchy at all. That doesn't mean we don't have hierarchies. We have economic hierarchies and all the rest. But in terms of social expectations, how do I behave when I walk into this room? It's a free-for-all in every room we walk into, and that's very difficult. It's that constant flux that that is the is the problem. But you know, one mystery that that I think a lot of people have observed is America is also known around the world as being a very religious society, certainly compared to you know other Western European and other advanced economies. How do we square that? I mean, is is our religion kind of a fake religion? I mean, because I mean, it's not really recognizable as the religion of, of someone like a Pascal. How do we account for the religiosity of Americans? I think Tocqueville's observations on this were uh, really double-edged, which is, I think one side of it really does speak to what you're saying there and the question that you're asking in the sense that when Tocqueville comes to this country, he sees Look, everybody goes to church every week. As a social phenomenon, religion looks really ubiquitous. But then he writes in some of the same letters, I think doubt is the sentiment that's really reigning over Mm -hmm. everybody's soul. So everybody is officially a believer, but everybody is unofficially, but very detectably a doubter. This is what Tocqueville actually sees going on with people in the United States. But on the one hand, he thinks Americans' religiosity is socially healthy in a certain way. That is, he looks at the, the commercial and political tumult of America that goes on six days a week, and he says, well, thank God these people have the Sabbath. At least like one day a week, they stop, and they sit mm-hmm. still, and they, they read the Bible, and they spend time with their families, and that's what they do. And Watch football now. Yeah, well, right, right. We've taken care of that problem. The uh, that was something for Tocqueville that was that was very healthy, and he also saw the ways in which transcendent longing just kept exploding among this people. So, you know, Tocqueville was lived in an age at the beginning of an American age of religious revivals, and he saw people tromping out into the wilderness to go hear some preacher. Because there was something in them that was, they were, in a way, they had it better materially Mm -hmm. than any human beings had ever, you know, the opportunities afforded to them. This had not been seen in human history before this time for so many people to be able to put together a materially comfortable life. That was amazing. But they just got exhausted by these material pursuits and they knew that there was something in themselves that was never going to be satisfied with a bit more money, a bigger house, you know, all the things that we can grasp after. And in this, Tocqueville saw a reflection of something genuine in the human soul. So Tocqueville mm. read Pascal every day. Gustave de Beaumont said that two minds were born for each other. 
Tocqueville was, he's a deeply Pascalian soul. And so when Americans were religiously discontent in this way, he felt that was good. Uh, that was a reminder of what the human condition is really all about. So they're actually complementary, right? The kind of the restlessness of, of the American soul and the quest for you know religion and transcendence. Yes, I, I think what we've tried to describe in this book is you know restlessness is an ancient phenomenon. Uh, Saint Augustine famously prayed. He said. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. That is to he's speaking to God. And so in a way, this has always been around. What we're trying to describe in this book is the restlessness that comes to exist in the wake of the movement of Montaignan skepticism, by which I mean this. When we tell ourselves, I can't go questing for the transcendent because such quests are dangerous, because that might end up mm -hmm. with religious war. Then we try to sort of lower the temperature and just take our bearings from the good things around us. Okay, I'm just going to make myself satisfied with some more mundane kinds of human pursuits. The, very, the specifically modern restlessness is the kind of restlessness that exists when people have intentionally set their sights on imminent contentment, on happiness here and now. And then they find, oh, this is not working then they really start to spin because the path of seeking transcendence seems to be cut off. And that's what that's the kind of discontent that we're trying to describe in this book. Now, at the end of the book, you, you have some thoughts on liberal education, and I was very disappointed in the brevity of that section uh, of the book. I was kind of hoping you could add a little bit more to that. But, but you, you, know, you say that without self-knowledge, the quest for the good life is vacations, vocations, and uh, locations. <laughs> I like that formulation. But you say that kind of liberal education is really an education in, in choosing and in, in judgment. And I think that circles all the way back to Montaigne. Could, could you talk a bit about, you know, what should we be doing with education and uh, what should we be seeking out in, in education? And I, don't, I don't mean just sort of, you, you know, those four years that you spend at university, but, but, you know, what should people be doing and how can we kind of institutionally do a better job of, of helping people to navigate their, their worlds? That's a great question. And we're working on a book on liberal education. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. that's going to be the next project. Here, we're trying to sketch the outlines of something that we see as potentially a help with the kinds of problems that we describe. And what we have in mind specifically is we start the, the book with the story of a student who doesn't know how to sort out her priority. She could do all kinds of things and she has no idea how to pick. And one of the things that we're trying to criticize in the kind of liberal education that is on offer in our best colleges and universities is that it seems to offer people very little help with mm -hmm. the fundamental task that they're engaged in which is trying to figure out how they're going to pursue happiness. And what we argue for here is that one has to pay attention to the question of human ends or purposes. The, the, there's a trio of these ends, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And it is possible to organize an education around those questions. What is true, what is good, and what is beautiful? And I think we once did organize mm -hmm. educations around those questions. 
in this country and throughout a very long tradition of liberal education in what's come to be called the Western world, really beginning with Socrates, but through all kinds of inflections thereafter. I think we need to have the courage to ask those questions again, as if there might be answers to them. And this is the thing that that I have found most frequently in the classroom, is that the fundamental obstacle to education in moral matters right now is despair. When I read Plato's Gorgias with my students, which is the first book I assign them in their mm. first years, their response to the Gorgias, which is a very tough argument uh, between Socrates and some hot-headed characters about how human beings should live, the typical response is, you can't ask this question. Nobody mm -hmm. can investigate the question of how to live because it's merely subjective, right? You live your way, I live my way, and that's all there is to say. That instinct deprives us of our reason as the means by which we're going to navigate our lives. So our education stop before they start. And the reason for this is that students don't have any hope that they could figure out anything about what they want to pursue. And so this is the kind of education which we think exists in a lot of institutions these days. It's being built up again. Uh, we're thinking mostly of the K-12 level, actually, because uh, we've had our kids involved in classical schools. We've been just blown away by what people are able to do in that context. So we think it's possible to reorient education toward the question of human ends. The, the question of human ends is not the whole of an education. There's lots of other stuff that, that, that needs to be learned. But our education should be preparing people to make the choices that they're necessarily going to make about how they live their lives with the help of their minds. <laughs> you know, th th they shouldn't just be waiting for emotional impulses to come to them in the middle mm -hmm. of the night and tell them, you know, I ought to be a TV broadcaster or whatever. They should have the trained capacity to use their reason to sort through what is really good, what is really true, and what is really beautiful. And we think that'd be a path toward educational renewal. Right. So people, when they think of self-knowledge, they think, okay, what, what are my beliefs? What are my wants? And what are my likes? But they're not thinking, you know, what is true, good, and beautiful? And how can I make my, my beliefs and my wants and my likes align in some way with the good, the true, and the beautiful, which is not entirely originated from within? That's very nicely put. I think you know, what we see there is a kind of decayed Montaignanism. And you know, I don't want to reduce mm -hmm. Montaigne to this maneuver, but Montaigne does, he turns our focus to the self. So Montaigne shares in common with Socrates the quest for self-knowledge, but Socrates is, as we talked about earlier, he's asking the big questions. Montaigne is just asking about me. And as you just described it, that's what we so often see is that I can remember this happening to me as a young person, where I was trying to look to the adults around me to say like, what ought, what should I do with my life? What would constitute a meaningful life? How does one like try to make their way in the world? What makes sense? What's important? And people wouldn't tell me anything. They mm. would throw me back on myself, you know? Well, you just gotta figure out what your beliefs are, what your desires are and so on. And you know, I was looking around in there and there just wasn't much that I wanted to follow coming out, you know? It was, they, 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 you know, it, looking inward just showed me a lot of disorder in many cases. And so I think we have a kind of unearned skepticism, an instinctive kind of doubt about the questions that necessarily orient our lives. That is, what I mean by that is, I may not think I know what the beautiful is, but that doesn't stop me from being moved by the beautiful, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm still going to sort of be drawn by this and follow it. Well, 
the same thing with the good. I may not think through the question of the good, but I use the word good all the time. And it, I use it to describe the things that I think are worth eating or doing or, or whatever. Well, I think we'd be better off if we thought through what we meant when we use these terms that provide the orienting points of our lives. And I think that's what liberal education in its true nature would be helping people do. Well, Ben, I look forward to that next book. Um, it's been great chatting with you. We could go on all day, I'm sure. Highly recommend this book, Why We Are Restless on the Modern Quest for Contentment. Hope to chat again soon. All right, Gregory, thanks so much for having me on. Really enjoyed your great questions. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Thank you.